Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so impressed that everyone is out and about at meetings here the first morning, but this is terrific. Um, I'm honored to be here at Payne Week again. I've been here before, and I just find this meeting to be so energizing and exciting. And one of the things I really like is the mix of people that we have here. I love that we're all coming together as different specialists and different types of providers really to work together to make the the best outcomes for our patients. So I will be talking about biobehavioral management of migraine, so really everything we can do in addition to medication. And here uh, are my disclosures. And so I know we have a great mix of people. Just to get a little idea of who's here in the room, I know we have a lot of nurses here who are nurses. Good, good. I know we have a lot of physicians here, and we have some PAs. We might have some social workers, psychologists, case managers, um, maybe some PTs, OTs, awesome. Maybe a dentist, do we have any dentists? Anyone who was just walking through the lobby and thought this sounded cool? <laughs> who did I miss? Did I miss someone? I'm sorry if I missed an important team member. No, okay. So let's jump right in. Here are the learning objectives. At the end of this course, participants will be able to list the evidence supporting the non-pharmacologic approaches to the management of chronic pain using migraine as an example. So we're going to talk about migraine. I have a migraine case. However, I will keep pointing out that the, these techniques have strong evidence for other types of chronic pain conditions, too. Um, explain the clinical application of the non-pharmacologic approaches to the management of chronic pain conditions, and feel confident describing treatments to patients and making referrals. And I want to teach you a little bit, in case you don't know, how to lead some of these exercises, such as a diaphragmatic breathing or a guided visual imagery. So if you want to do some in your office, uh, either as an adjunct to getting someone referred or as a quick way to get someone started in some relaxation training, you feel that you can do that too. So as we know, you're all here at this meeting where we're all here together. We know that pain really is very nicely conceptualized in the biopsychosocial model. We know that the biologic, the psychologic, and the social factors all play into both the evolution and the maintenance of pain. By the time we see folks with chronic pain conditions, it's all gotten mixed up in a big inflammatory soup, and we're trying to pull it all apart. We really can't pull it apart. We know that we have to work from all of these directions. And we certainly know that there is the original nociception, which if we're talking about migraine, may be the uh, activation that's happening in the brain. But then on top of that, we have the pain perception. What does this mean? How many people have seen a migraine patient say, um, I might have a brain tumor, I think I've had a stroke? How many people have heard that? And a lot of migraine patients will actually like a, a comfort MRI or imaging to say, no, you're okay, it's just migraine. So there's this perception. And different perceptions mean different things. And once we can say to someone, you have migraine, it's a chronic lifetime condition. Um, however, it will not do damage to your brain. You're not being hurt. You're not going to die. There's a a sense of relief, and once we can turn down the anxiety a little bit, then we start to manage the condition. Um, there's the appraisal, and um, I actually wasn't able to come to pain week last year because I was having a baby a couple days after the meeting, which, um, so he's one years old now. You know, and I love to think of the example of, of two people in the, the same hospital, one a man passing a kidney stone and two a woman having a baby, and you might have some similar levels of pain there, and yet, at the outcome, for one, you just have a kidney stone. The other, you have a baby. So very different outcomes. So there's also this appraisal of what does this pain mean to me? And for a lot of people, migraine is a, it's a burden. It's a weight. It's an anchor. Something they say, why me? Why do I have this? Why do I have to live with this? And all of that appraisal matters. Affect, we know that depression, anxiety are common travelers with migraine. In our research, we see that 30% of people with episodic migraine are in the general population or maybe closer to 50 to 70% in a tertiary care center are going to have depression, anxiety, or both. And then the behavior. Um, 
what's going on with family and what's going on at work. And um, we just published some research recently where we analyzed um, about 2,000 people with chronic migraine, but we also interviewed separately their spouses and their children aged 13 years and older and found out how is having migraine affecting the whole family. And I'm sure it's no surprise to this audience that the whole family is quite strongly affected from kids missing school activities, not having their parents able to help with homework, um, mom or dad being away in a dark, quiet room and not functioning for days at a time. So there's the behaviors. So you all know all this. So we're going to talk about all these different levels. But um, we're not going to really get to the nociception because migraine is a chronic, genetically-based predisposition condition. And if someone has it, they kind of have it. Um, they may start to remit after menopause if we're talking about a female. But when you say that to a teenager, it's not very comforting. Um, but we're going to work on all these other levels because we can address all of these. So I also want to say, I'm so glad you're all here in the audience. I saw we do have psychologists and social workers. And we also have other people who aren't mental health providers. They're physical health providers. But really, we all do it all. So everyone in the room already does quite a few behavioral things. You do education. In migraine, that's going to be talking about triggers, talking about the healthy lifestyle like sleep and nutrition and staying hydrated. Um, you work on good communication, and there's some great studies on how to effectively communicate with our patients with pain to enhance adherence and motivation. I'm going to give a talk tomorrow, actually, on what to do when it seems like your patient just isn't working as hard as you and doesn't want to get better. So I have a whole talk on how to enhance motivation and adherence. So these are things we all do in the room. So we all engage in behavioral strategies all the time, actually. And then you're going to have your behavioral specialists, who are going to be your psychologists, psychiatrists. Say, um, also, a lot of PTs and OTs are great at some of these skills. Um, relaxation training, your social workers, stress management, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavior therapy, DBT, which is the empirically validated therapy for borderline personality disorder. So thank goodness that exists. And biofeedback. So those are things that, if you're not a mental health provider, you're going to refer out to, even though I'm going to teach you a little bit of relaxation training today. And I want to think about what's great for all of our patients. So all of our patients with migraine and other chronic pain conditions can really use the education, communication, um, adherence enhancement strategies, and relaxation training and stress management. And I dare say that um, probably all of us in the room could use uh, some relaxation and uh, stress management. I actually have a talk on that, too. I'm giving a talk on burnout. So if you even have the tiniest bit of feeling, come join me, and we'll discuss. Um, and then some patients may really need to be referred to a mental health professional for some good cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavior therapy, and biofeedback training. So I'm going to spend a short amount of time on the data, because you're already here in the room, so I think you believe that these behavioral approaches have efficacy, but they do. They do. Hundreds and hundreds of studies since the 1970s have shown that a range of behavioral treatments can be very effective in migraine management. This slide is actually from four different meta-analyses combined. And what we're seeing here, if we look on the right, we see propranolol and flunarazine. Uh, two of the FDA-approved migraine preventive medications given on their own. Here we see kind of some of these high bars, um, relaxation training, temperature biofeedback, the combination of the two uh, without a preventive medication. And we're seeing actually similar effect sizes in percent improvement if we're just going a preventive med or a behavioral approach. But three different meta-analyses show um, that the gold standard for our patients is really the best pharmacologic combined with the behavioral approaches. These are three uh, meta-analyses um, um, from uh, published in JAMA in the British Medical Journal showing headache improvement at eight months when we have placebo only, medication only, stress management therapy only, and those combined. So really, when you can get to combining um, best of our best. That's how we get our best patient outcomes. So there are a lot of benefits for adding the behavioral interventions. 
They're generally fairly inexpensive. I am a practicing psychologist. I get uh, insurance coverage for, for um, all my patients. I don't have any problems with that. Um, so usually people just have a copay. Um, and they can be cost saving. In, in fact, um, we know from research that when you've got a behavioral treatment on board, people are less likely to go to the emergency department, which is a $1,000 bill really quickly. Um, they are less likely to call in to their their nurse practitioner, their, their physician after hours with questions because they can ask me those questions. And a lot of those questions, as we know, are anxiety driven, those follow up, but what if, and I just looked this up and I just found out about this side effect and how am I supposed to take these again? When you have a pain psychologist on board, she or he can absorb some of that. They can be practiced alone or in conjunction with pharmacotherapy. They have few or no side effects that I can think of, no medication interactions. And they're also really um, important for enhancing self-efficacy. In chronic pain conditions, a lot of our patients get very frustrated by feeling out of control of their life. I've lost control of my life. This disease has taken over my life. How often do you, how many people heard that just in the last couple weeks alone with any kind of chronic pain condition? And a lot of the frustration and anxiety is that I've lost control, why me? Something like migraine is very frustrating because it often seems to come out of the blue. There may be triggers, but it's often out of the blue, maybe right before an important event, kids' first day back to school, a wedding, a family vacation, just boom, someone's hit out of the blue and they're out for the count for 12 hours. And that's very frustrating. And by giving tools that they can do behaviorally, in addition to a good medication regimen that they can manage, like an acute and a rescue medication, they're starting to feel a little bit empowered. Okay, I, I've got some control back. So I'm going to review the empirically supported behavioral interventions. And there are a whole range of um, complementary and alternative treatments which are used in migraine to some degree of effectiveness, but I'm going to use, I'm going to talk about the ones that really have the powerful evidence behind them, including the cognitive behavioral therapies, relaxation therapies, biofeedback, education, and I'm going to talk for just a minute about the third wave therapies because we're hearing more about those. Those are going to be our mindfulness, our acceptance and commitment therapy, and there's research being done. In fact, we're doing a study at my headache center on mindfulness for migraine. So, I put them in there because they're cool and they're coming down the pike and it's exciting to know what's new, but um, they are new and they're not as established. The CBT biofeedback and relaxation therapies, we have hundreds of studies, a half a dozen meta-analyses coming since the 1970s. What are they based on? They're mostly based on the good old stress response or the fight or flight response. They come from the idea that stress is this perception of physical or psychological stimulus that requires an adjustment behavior. And we know that when we experience a stressor, the body responds where the cerebral cortex perceives the threat and the emotional response is processed in the limbic system. And we have this whole wonderful cascade of survival events, including activating the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So now this is not to say that stress causes migraine. And I always want to be very cautious when I talk to patients because if I say stress causes migraine, it may sound like I am blaming them for their actions causing a migraine attack. Migraine is genetically mediated. We are born with it like hair color and eye color. If you have one parent with migraine, here, let me bounce off of that so you're not seeing that cat. If you have one parent with migraine, you have a 50% chance of having migraine. Two parents, you have a 75% chance of having migraine. It's the genetic lottery. Now, there's a lot of good things that go along with migraine. I just read a study on the plane here that, that teenagers with migraine were more popular, more talkative, and doing better academically than their peers. So it shouldn't be stigmatizing, but it feels that way. People wonder, why me? So someone has the disease of migraine. It's where we can interact and control is these attacks. When do the attacks occur? Can we lessen the number of attacks? Can we lessen the frequency, the severity? Can we help someone get through an attack once it's started by giving them a good medication and having them do relaxation training? Yes, so that's where we have our control as healthcare professionals. Not only do patients get frustrated when they feel out of control, we get frustrated as healthcare professionals. We went into this business to help people, and when we feel like we can't, especially when we have these lovely, lovely patients who are trying to live their lives, we get frustrated. So these also give us tools to tell our patients,
thing that we know will help you and can help. So the opposite of the fight or flight, right, is rest and digest, the relaxation response. And this is the core tenet of many of the empirically validated biobehavioral approaches to migraine management. What we want to do is just relax the nervous system, keep everything calm and balanced. And um, there's a lot of ways to get there. Maybe through progressive muscle relaxation, um, diaphragmatic breathing, meditation, guided visual imagery, yoga, prayer, walking your dog, gardening, taking a bubble bath, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and um, boy, this 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 hotel has has good bathtubs for bubble baths. Wow, I could just imagine prescribing, taking a bubble bath here, looking over the strip in your deep. Deep, uh, deep bathtub. But there's a lot of ways to achieve the relaxation. It may be quite personal for an individual, and that might be a kind of nice conversation to have with someone. What do you find relaxing and soothing and calming? But most techniques around the globe start with breathing. Breathing is so core and so basic, and of our autonomic functions, it's one of the easier to control. And then, of course, if we control and relax the breathing, the rest of our body goes along with it. The heart rate slows, and we're going to see a reduction in galvanic skin response, a reduction in muscle tension, improving circulation. That's why we measure the hands and the nose and the feet. That's why we measure extremity temperature with stress. You know, if you remember a mood ring back when you were in high school, they want to have a mood ring back, back then. What I was doing was measuring your external skin temperature, because in the fight or flight state, all the blood rushes to our core of our body, our major muscle groups, our hands and feet get cold. Same thing happens with migraine and other episodic chronic pain conditions when we have an attack. The body goes into pulling all the blood into the core. One reason that's not good is because we want to get a lot of blood and oxygen to the brain. So I start with breathing because it's easy to control. So what I would like everyone to do is put one hand on your chest, one hand on your stomach. And um, first thing is let's just notice what's moving. Is your chest moving or is your stomach moving with each breath? Just kind of notice. And a lot of times when we're active, we're walking around, we're thinking, we're doing, we do a lot of this chest breathing and movement. And when our patients are getting nervous, anxious, panic attack, it's high and shallow. It's up here in the chest. So what we want to do now is put both hands on the belly. And our goal is to imagine the lungs expanding like a balloon with each breath in. Let's breathe in through the nose. Fill the lungs. We're going to hold. We're going to exhale nice. Drop the mouth. Let me hear everyone. Good. I'm going to breathe in through the nose. I'm going to count to three, two, three. Hold, two, three, exhale, big, two, three, hold, two, three, in, two, three, hold, two, three, exhale, hold, two, three. Very good. Now, this is the basis of all the relaxation therapies. This is something that patients can do with a couple minutes on the subway, in their car, standing in line at the grocery store, in between meetings, fighting with their teenager. It's a very simple thing to do. And immediately when we start doing this, if someone's hooked up to biofeedback, in seven or eight seconds, we'll start to see all those other processes fall in line. We'll start to see the hands start to warm up. Start to see the muscle tension decrease. This is a great thing to have on hand if you ever have a patient come in, either who's very anxious and flustered, or even having a panic attack, you could start and say, let's do two minutes of breathing together, or one minute of breathing together. There's also something very comforting about this kind of hand on your chest, hand on your stomach. And I have patients do this physical movement, because even if they're on the subway in New York City, where I, where I am, um, once they've practiced it, this starts to become classically conditioned, so that now this movement is a calming, soothing movement. I also kind of think it's kind of a, a nurturing movement. I know with my baby, I do a lot of kind of touching and relaxing. So it's kind of a self-nurturing movement. That's the breathing. 
Super simple, super easy, the basis of all relaxation. This is great for panic attacks, it's great for anxiety, or even if you have a patient who comes in really flustered and you want to focus this patient so you can get through your interview and your, and your 12 minutes that you have allotted, you can say, let's start together with a little bit of deep breath. If someone is really flustered, sometimes I'll even start with that exhale. I'll say, let's just exhale all out that stress. Just blow it all out. And what happens after a deep blowout is that naturally the lungs fill. It also is a bit of an icebreaker. Sometimes people will laugh or kind of relax. It breaks the tension. Now, um, sometimes people tell me they can't find a psychologist or they can't find a provider accepting insurance. So I have actually recorded exercises for everything I'm talking about on my website, which is donbuse.com. If you go to the tab that says relaxation, I've got audio exercises. When I say that, usually during a talk, someone or seven people log on on their phone and it starts playing automatically. So don't be surprised if we hear it play. And then that person's embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Um, anyway, there's breathing exercises on my website. So say you had a patient either who said, uh, I don't have money or time to do this, or thinking, oh, this is a little too touchy-feely for me, you could say, well, you know, check it out. See, see what it sounds like. And send them to the website. And sometimes that's a nice entree, because now they've heard what they're going to be doing. It's not quite so intimidating. Progressive muscle relaxation. OK, I want everyone to hold up one arm. You're going to clench your fist, clench your bicep. And let's hold that for a minute while I'm talking. And the idea of progressive muscle relaxation, which was actually first cited in the medical literature in 1938 by Edmund Jacobson, is we just want patients to recognize the tension in their body. And a lot of times we're carrying a lot of tension in our own neck, shoulders, jaw, the frontalis, the back certainly. Um, we all spend our days hunched over computers, so we're all pulling the muscles in the back and tightening our pectoralis muscles in the front. So, it's hard to say to someone, okay, just, re just relax your muscles. Now, that's not so easy to do. But what we can do here is we're going to exhaust a muscle group. And now, people are probably stronger than me. I see some people aren't even, aren't even feeling it, but I'm feeling it. So I'm going to put it down. Rest it on a chair, a table, your lap. Now you feel that. What do you feel? Throw out some words. What does that feel like? Tingling? Warm? kind of spaghetti arm, wet noodle, that's a great feeling. So what I do for progressive muscle relaxation is muscle groups going from the top of the head down to the bottom of the toes. You can spend as many minutes and you can either isolate really tiny, so you can do forehead and then you can do cheeks and then you can do jaw and then you can do neck and shoulders, or you can do larger groups to move faster so you can do the whole face, neck, top of the torso, hold for 30, 45 seconds, relax go to the core of the body, go down to the legs and the feet. And um, this, again, um, is a nice one for us as healthcare professionals. We're on our feet. We're rushing from one to the next. We have a lot of stress in our day. Um, we're also doing a lot of hunching over our screens all day. It's kind of a nice thing to kind of take a moment and um, do our own little either clench and relax or deep breath. Imagine if you came out of one exam room, you did one cycle, deep breathing, and then you go into your next exam room. Imagine if you did that throughout the day. You might also be able to kind of keep your, your stress down. And something interesting, um, we seem to study what we experience. Now, I don't know what that means about me as a psychologist, but, you know, of headache specialist physicians, 60% of them actually have migraine themselves. So what I'm saying is as pain providers, it would not be surprising if we also lived with some amount of pain, tension, stress ourselves. And that's one reason why we are so good at empathetic and kind and caring to others. So these are all things we can not only teach our patients, but the nice thing is if you do it with your patient session, you get the benefit too. So that's kind of a nice bonus. And again, I've got, I've got progressive muscle relaxation on my website if someone wanted to try it out there. And, um, and on to guided imagery. So guided imagery, what I'll usually do is I'll start with breathing, and then I'll go on to guided imagery. And in the image, what I will generally do is a warm image because we want to encourage circulation. So again, we're thinking about 
during the uh, sympathetic fight or flight response, if circulation is coming to the core of the body. What we want to do is get back to nice blood oxygen flow throughout the body. So I'm doing warming exercises. So I like the beach anyway, love the desert, all these beautiful places. So what I'm going to do is simply have my patient start with a little breathing, close their eyes, and then I'm going to have them imagine they're in a beautiful place where they feel safe and calm, peaceful and relaxed. While we're doing this, we just want to see heart rate lowering, respiration is slowing. We're going to see reduction in galvanic skin response, improvement in total body circulation, reduction in corticosteroids, uh, glucose circulating in the body, just reduction in all those stress markers. So, if you'll bear with me again, let's go ahead and put one hand on our chest, one hand on our stomach. If you trust me, if you trust your neighbor, you can close your eyes. If you don't trust your neighbor, just look at a spot in front of you on your lap. Going to breathe in through your nose. Going to hold. Exhale out through your mouth. In through your nose. Hold. Exhale out through your mouth. And now let your breath just follow at a relaxed, comfortable pace for you. Let both of your hands rest on your belly. And as you breathe in with each breath, feel the oxygen, the pure air filling your lungs. As you breathe out with each breath, breathe out stress and tension. Each breath bringing relaxation and warmth to your body. And now you're going to leave your body and you're going to imagine it's a lovely day, a lovely September day. We're going to be on a beautiful beach somewhere, maybe somewhere that you've been on vacation, maybe somewhere you've seen a movie or just somewhere you'd like to go. And you are perfectly warm and comfortable, not too hot. You can actually feel a salty, cool breeze with the water coming off the, off the ocean waves. And as you look out in front of you, you see the beautiful blue of the ocean. You hear the sound of the waves coming in and crashing on the beach. And you start to breathe with the wave. You inhale as the breath comes in. You exhale as the wave recedes. You may be standing in the sand. You kind of wiggle your toes in the sand. You feel the lovely warmth of the sand beneath you the warmth of the sun on your face, your arms. Maybe you have a hat or maybe you're under a, a tree and you're just perfectly comfortable. You feel warm and relaxed, safe and peaceful. And you know that while you're here, your body is getting rejuvenated, relaxed, healthy and balanced. Very good. And now you're going to return your focus to the sound of my voice. Feel the chair beneath you, the floor beneath your feet. Wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers, and when you're ready you can open your eyes. Any reactions? Now that was only two minutes. We were in uncomfortable chairs in a chilly room, but did anyone kind of connect with that image? Did anyone start to feel any relaxing of muscles, relaxing of body? Yeah, good. Some good responses. So that's a fun and easy thing to do, and you'll really get a nice physiologic relaxation response. This is very good for stress. It's very good for reducing the kind of stress reaction, which is going to lead to anxiety and panic. And um, this is fun to tailor to anything the person really connects to. Um, a lot of times, a lot of people seem to like the beach, but people may like a mountain image um, going into fall. People may like to be walking through around a lake, and you can imagine the fall colors on the leaves. You can imagine um, the sound of the pine needles crunching beneath your feet. So if you lead this, you want to think about all of your senses. What is the person seeing? Describe colors, 
trees, birds, the earth. What are they feeling? So in this, you felt the sun on your face. You felt the sand in your toes. You felt a little ocean spray. What are they smelling? So salty, tangy sea air. Maybe you can smell the sunscreen. Um, what are they hearing? Ocean waves, birds, maybe children playing down the beach. So this is one way to really get someone into the experience is by going through all the senses. And a lot of times, since I have time as a psychologist in my, my time with the patient, I'll start with them describing to me either a place that they've been or a place that they would like to go. It may be somewhere they vacationed as a child, although for every patient, as we all know, especially with chronic pain patients, childhood may have not been a happy or safe place. So I start by checking that out before I, I, I go into a place. And I just let them guide me with what they would like between um, forest, mountain, beach, desert. Um, and sometimes people will come up with other things. I have a teenager who likes her room. And so we just go in, you know, just imagine we're on her bed in her room. Um, in the winter, some people like kind of a mountain cabin scene. So even though you're doing a winter scene, you want to stay warm because we are really encouraging the circulation. So a mountain cabin, it could be snowing outside, but you're inside, you're by the fire, you're holding hot chocolate, you can smell that, you've got a blanket, you can smell the fire. So you can do all sorts of senses with uh, the mountain cabin. And so one thing I'll have, to have patients do is in between sessions really kind of explore and work on images that they find soothing and comforting. And then there's other things I will do. I will go on to kind of hypnotic suggestions. Once, once they're quite relaxed, I'll say, you know, you are safe, you are, your, your nervous system is relaxed, you are feeling balanced, you have control over your emotions, you have control over your anxiety. I just suggest something that someone would want, so egocentric suggestions um, and empowering suggestions. And what will happen is at the end of a 15-minute relaxation session, I'll say, well, what did you think? What did you? And they'll say, I have no idea what you said. But I always consider that a good thing. That means they were deeply relaxed and accepting of any suggestions. So that's guided visual imagery. I have some on my website. There's other wonderful ones around the web for free. There's some at UCLA, UC San Diego. iTunes has, and um, the App Store, the Google Play Store have wonderful free guided visual imagery. There's some great apps, and you probably know as many as I do. One app is calm.com. Um, the Huffington Post made GPS for the soul. There's so much good stuff out there these days that even if someone can't find a psychologist, there's no need to spend any money or travel or any time. You can find great relaxation. Um, if someone wanted to do some of the things that I really do that is combining cognitive behavioral therapy and relaxation. Um, this book is only about $20, Relaxation and Stress Reduction Workbook by David Eshelman, McKay, and Fanning. And it's really nicely done. It has a lot of interactive um, and educational components for patients. So I really like that one, um, whether they're seeing a, a mental health professional or not, um, to learn some of these behavioral techniques. That is one way that you can um, get them some of the learning if they can't find someone. So let's go on to cognitive behavioral therapy because I just mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy. So we've all heard about CBT for decades. It's very well validated. And what we're doing is seeking to identify and modify maladaptive beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors. It is generally time limited and problem focused as opposed to a psychodynamic approach which may be longer and more open-ended. Um, uh, so we're really kind of building and enhancing coping skills. And so in migraine, it may be quite simple things. It may be take your rescue medication with you, problem solving, why don't you have it? And for migraine, that if we were to follow that example, it might be, well, my insurance will only provide X number of, of triptans per month. So I have to figure out, is this, migraine, is this headache a migraine or not? And when do I take it? So we go down all of those paths and all those discussions. So I do talk about quite a few things that a physician, a nurse practitioner, another healthcare professional would spend time on. And I probably go over the same things that they did, just reinforcing. So it's a lot of problem solving. Um, 
People with chronic medical, chronic pain conditions may be affecting, experiencing problems at work, so we'll do problem solving there. They may have problems in school. And a lot of times, there are more simple solutions than someone realizes. I don't know that our patients always realize that they are protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act. If they're in college, all they need to do is speak to their Office of Disabilities, and they are protected legally to get um, whatever accommodations they need to be successful. If I'm talking to someone who's in elementary or junior high or high school or talking with a parent and I find out they're going all day without drinking water, all day without having a snack, it may be as simple as I write a note to the principal or the nurse and I say, we need to have this, this child have water with her in the classroom. Or if this child says they have a migraine, they need to be released immediately to take their medication right away. So a lot of times it may seem simple to us, but these simple things are severely impeding their outcomes. So we spend a lot of time on some of these problem-solving things. Um, in addition, we talk a lot about perception. So patients may start saying, you know, this disease, this condition is controlling my life. I have lost control of my life. I cannot do things I want to do. And if we really start to look at those, well, they haven't lost complete control. And they still can do and are doing quite a bit. So it's a lot of checking in and really adjusting with perceptions. Um, three of the big areas that have the most research behind them include reducing catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is that snowball where someone might say, say with migraine perhaps, I, I couldn't study last night, I, I, I couldn't study for this pop quiz, I failed the pop quiz, I probably am going to fail this class, this is one of my core classes, I'm going to fail out of college, I'm never going to get a job, I'm going to live in my parents' basement. So that is catastrophizing. And we very quickly try to go back up to step one or two of that, stop that snowball, and test those thoughts and try and replace those thoughts with realistic uh, thoughts. Enhancing self-efficacy and encouraging the internal locus of control. These are very important. Our chronic pain patients feel like they have lost control of their lives. The disease is in control of their life. And there's a lot of places of where self-management really leads to good outcomes where we need our patients interacting choosing how and when to take their medications, going to physical therapy, doing their exercises, getting enough sleep, eating properly, drinking, staying hydrated, eating protein. There's a lot that our chronic pain patients actually need to do to have effective outcomes. So we want to give them back. Not only you can do something, but you need to do these things. We're gonna, you're, in, you're, you're part of this team here. Um, and I'm going to talk about that in more detail uh, this afternoon in, in my talk, Aches, Pains, and Secondary Gains, um, how to enhance motivation. And then teaching patients to monitor and, and adjust maladaptive thoughts. So these are really the core things I do in CBT. Um, and we do a lot of workbooks, a lot of handouts, a lot of homework. It's very interactive. For example, keeping a headache diary. Keeping a headache diary may be important because someone may have very specific triggers. Um, their migraine may always be perimenstrual. Their migraine may be when they didn't get enough sleep. They may have very specific triggers. And these triggers are very nice to know because, again, that gives someone something they can do, a place to intervene, and it gives them back some power. So we like to keep a headache diary the first couple months of their treatment. And then we may also keep it longer if we're adjusting medications, if we're starting biofeedback or stress management training, relaxation training. I want them to note down every day, did they practice? What was their outcome? So CBT is very kind of homework and action oriented. And here are a couple of my favorite books. I'm sure there are other wonderful books out there, but <clears throat> these are on my bookshelf. <coughs> including Mind Over Mood, which has a lot of great um, workbooks, or, or I'm sorry, note worksheets for challenging dysfunctional thoughts. Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy by David Burns, which is no longer new. I think it's been out for 20 years, but I love it. Managing Pain Before It Manages You and Full Catastrophe Living. Um, the work of John Kabat-Zinn in pain management is really great. And if you have a more sophisticated patient, they may enjoy reading 
full catastrophe living because it really talks about what's going on at the biologic level and how they can intervene in a, in a psychological way. It also, um, as people probably know, John Kabat-Zinn was one of the pioneers of mindfulness for pain management at UMass uh, Amherst and Western Massachusetts um, 20 years ago. So it's kind of the Bible of mindfulness for pain management. So it's a really nice one. If you are looking for referrals, I hear all the time I cannot find a provider. I've got these all listed on my website. And if you go to my website and you click on them, they go right to the search page. But I've got find a biofeedback provider, find a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, <clears throat> um, find, find someone in, in behavioral medicine. The only thing that I can't find very well is psychiatrists. Psychiatrists, at least in New York City, finding a good psychiatrist who accepts insurance is like finding a rainbow unicorn. I cannot find psychiatrists. So don't ask me for that one. But the rest of them, I've got links right on my website um, across the country. So hopefully your patient can find someone. And the other thing is when people ask about how to find a provider, I tell them, call your insurance or look on their website. Because a lot of times, that's the very easiest way to figure out if someone's going to accept insurance is going directly to the insurance and getting their list of providers. OK, so let's talk a little bit about what are the third wave therapies. And um, some of these are not so new anymore. Dialectic behavior therapy was developed by Marsha Linehan in Seattle for um, um, in her words, unsuccessful suicide, multiple suicide attempters. Um, she's an amazing therapist who went to the, the emergency department, emergency room in Seattle and said, um, I want to work with everyone who, uh, who, who is your, your high flyer, your frequent flyer users, and who attempts suicide a lot, and let's see if we can figure out what's going on. Well, it turned out a lot of these folks were folks with a combination of personality disorders, which would be commonly borderline personality disorder, and abuse histories. Um, and she developed an amazing program, DBT, where not only does the patient engage in individual therapy, which is a cognitive behavioral therapy approach plus mindfulness, but the person engages in group therapy, because a lot of times they have a lot of interpersonal dysfunction and problematic relationships and the therapist engaged in group therapy. So group therapy for the therapist. I can't imagine, personally, having an entire caseload of people with borderline personality disorder. But bless these people. And not, I mean, take therapy, take a spa week, you know, whatever you need. But um, the nice thing is, if you do come across patients who it seems that their personality disorder is getting in the way of their life and treatment. DBT is terrific. There are workbooks for patients out there. There's workbooks for providers. Most cities, you can usually find a DBT group. There's a lot of resources online. And I don't know if folks have had, this is pain. We've all had experience with borderline patients, right? OK, yes, yes. Um, they're hard for us. They're hard for us. They're needy, and they're hard to help, and they're hard to move forward, and we want to help them. So getting a DBT provider on board will help us help them and help ourselves. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy, you may have been hearing about this. You're going to be hearing more about it. It actually was developed um, just up the road in Reno about 15, 20 years ago, but it's being applied more and more to chronic pain conditions. It's a pretty sophisticated um, therapeutic approach. So it's going to be beneficial for your higher functioning, intellectual, kind of big thinking patients. Um, Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is uh, using the, the approach that John Kabat-Zinn developed with mindfulness meditation practice and a mindfulness look at the world. And a mindfulness look at the world is looking at things as they are and not judging, which is harder than you might think. Um, it is being applied to chronic pain, including migraine. And we're actually doing a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy study right now at, at my headache center in the Bronx. So if you've got anyone, any New Yorkers, they're welcome to come in and do some free MBCT. But you can find it around the country now. It's gaining more and more popularity. Um, for all of these, the data are not as strong yet as the big three I talked about already, the, the biofeedback, the CBT, and the relaxation training possibly because those have been around for decades and well-researched. 
but these are all kind of in development. So if you see, if your patients ask about these, they are certainly, I would certainly say they're worth checking out and they're worth engaging in. Anything patients are excited about. Patients are kind of excited about mindfulness, at least in New York City um, and my hometown, San Diego. So at least in New York and California, patients are coming to us for mindfulness. And I'm guessing this is true across the country. Are people talking about mindfulness? They're kind of learning some on their own, some apps, some TED Talks. So that's a great way, if someone's already excited about it, that's a great segue to get them into a therapeutic relationship where they could start to learn these behavioral approaches. So go with what they're excited about and get them to a provider. So let's talk about biofeedback. Um, who has ever been hooked up to biofeedback? Okay, cool. It's great if you have because then you can really explain what it, what it feels like and what the experience is like. It's a neat experience. And um, I uh, try and have um, whoever's in my office, our, our fellows and our residents and our nurses and our physicians, anyone who wants to, to come by and get hooked up. Basically, um, we know that biofeedback has high, high efficacy for the treatment of so many types of chronic pain conditions and other chronic medical conditions. And some that relate to us here certainly are migraine, anxiety, epilepsy, chronic pain, insomnia, traumatic brain injury, TMD. Um, the list goes on and on. And the word biofeedback simply means that biologic processes are fed back to the person. So we're just teaching people to alter things which we think are normally not under their control. It might be muscle tension. Here we can see that this person has leads on the frontalis. It might be blood volume pressure, um, and we can see she has a, a blood volume pressure sensor on her finger. We also do galvanic skin response, GSR, um, finger temperature to look at that good circulation. Um, I have belts that go around the waist so we can look at the breathing. And basically what it's going to look like is something on the screen that they're going to look at. And it could look like a video game. It could look like a simple graph of lines. Um, as technology and video games get better, uh, what, what we have for biofeedback gets better. So we can kind of keep patients engaged with a whole bunch of different options. Um, and I'm going to show you in just a moment a case of a migraine patient doing biofeedback. And I'm going to show you exactly what her screen looked like. But, um, Biofeedback, you can usually find a provider. It might be a psychologist. It might be a PT, OT. Um, people may be certified biofeedback providers, but also they may not be certified, and they may have plenty of experience, and that might be okay. Um, on my website, I linked to the Association for Applied Psychophysiology in the U.S., which has Find a Provider. And for someone, a patient, who's not real excited about seeing a psychologist, if they say, there's nothing wrong with me. This is not in my head. I am not going to see a psychologist. What you can do is sometimes say, well, how about some biofeedback? And once they're hooked up, a lot of times then you start talking, and you can find out where the stressors are coming from. Um, very simply, you can do some relaxation training with a very simple finger thermometer. The idea is kind of, again, like the mood ring. What you would do if someone just wanted to start with something very basic is they could listen to a guided visual imagery, like on my website or a different website, be hooked up to a finger temperature thermometer, and what you're looking for is increasing finger temperature. Let me tell you about this case because we're getting down to our last few minutes. Um, this was a patient who came to the Montefiore Headache Center. Um, with a history of episodic migraine, but it had involved a chronic migraine. And um, she's a lovely person. She had a lot of stress. All of her uh, family was, was still home. She was um, from uh, an Afro, or she was from a Caribbean um, country. And um, she, she was born in Panama. And um, she actually worked for the Bronx DMV. And I just couldn't imagine more stress in your life. So, um, so she was very engaged, and so we did education, cognitive behavioral therapy, biofeedback, and relaxation training. And I want to show you what the biofeedback looked like. Here is a session with her doing relaxation training. What you can see is the colors of the word match the color of the lines. So here we have blood volume pressure, respiration, the belt around her waist in the blue, finger temperature increasing, EMG to the frontalis. And so here she's just breathing, relaxing for two minutes. And then I said, tell me about work today. <laughs> this is work today. She said, it wasn't that bad. 
That's one of the most interesting things about biofeedback is someone will say, it's not that bad. And then you'll say, oh, well, hmm. And then here we can see this is a seven, this is a 14-minute stress test where what we do is we relax for two minutes and then we do a, a stressor for two minutes. Relax for two minutes, stressor for two minutes. And here was that little section I just showed you about work, that two minutes I just expanded. The idea here is that we all go through peaks and valleys throughout the day. We're going to have stressors. What's important is how quickly can we calm our nervous system and resolve from it? So she did really well. She engaged. She was very active and is doing well. And in the combination of medication plus um, biofeedback, did really well. So in the last couple minutes, I just want to remind you, think about psychiatric comorbidities in your patients. They're going to be very common in migraine. They may have serious consequences. There's a suite of instruments I really like, which are available for use free of charge. It's the prime MD, which is most access one disorders. You can get depression, anxiety, panic um, in about four pages. Or if you want to go shorter, they do just pull out just the depression, the PHQ-9, just the anxiety, the GAD-7. Or you can do two items of depression and anxiety and um, very quick screener which you may want to include uh, in your intakes, and easy to score, easy to monitor. This also helps in EMR because now not only are you documenting progress, but sometimes you can um, code up and bill up because you've done assessment and counseling. So something to keep in mind, as well as these do ask about suicidality, so really good to keep in mind. Um, in the handouts, you'll see the questions, or you can see them online, the PHQ-9, the PHQ-2. And I just want to um, wrap up, because I know we're at the end of our time. When you make referrals, sometimes people are uncomfortable with the term psychology, psychotherapy. You can say things like biobehavioral training, behavioral medicine, biofeedback, stress management. Sometimes that helps with the referral. And just remind patients that just because you're making a referral, you're not abandoning them. You're staying on board. It's part of a team. You know that migraine is a biologic condition. You're not thinking that it's all in their head, even though their brain is in their head, but it's not all in their mind. They're not making it up, and you're not judging them. And treatment is going to help you manage them. So on my website, I have lots of referrals, lots of information, how to find providers, as I mentioned, and then also the free relaxation guided visual imagery at website. Um, in addition to those, I do have some CDs if anyone wants a copy to give out to patients or keep themselves. There's more on my website, but sometimes patients do like a CD these days. And I will be around for the next couple days, so please feel free to find me if you want to talk more or email me in the future. Thank you for your time.